You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to return to John chapter 9 as we continue to work through our study in John's Gospel. I hope you're enjoying this as much as I am. John's Gospel is a delight to study, as is the rest of the Word of God. So. Uh, we're going to read, we'll begin reading with verse 1, and uh, we're not going to get any further than verse 7, so uh, let's just take verses 1 through 7 this morning. As he passed by, he, that is Jesus, saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we call on you this morning that, Father, you would bless us with understanding of your word. Uh, For there are things in it that are some easier to understand than others. And we come to a a peculiar method here this morning, Father, that, that certainly does present some difficulties. Well, Father, we ask that you'd be pleased, O Lord, to instruct us this morning. Help us, O Father, to learn and to take in that which you, um, O Holy Spirit, uh, did indeed design for us to take in through this particular part of your word. Help us, O Father, to uh, learn those things, to hear those things, to see those things which you would have us to see from this event that took place so long ago, that continues to speak as if it just happened today. Well, Father, we pray that uh, this would not just satisfy a theological curiosity, but, Father, we'd find our hearts being changed, our capacity to worship you being enhanced, and that our surrender would be increased. We pray these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Last week, I started by pointing out the subheadings can sometimes get in our way, and I pointed out that the Bible I've been using here uh, as of lately is uh, actually two Bibles in one. It's a, it's a Spanish Bible, and it's an English Bible, and as I um, am really finding myself in the midst of ministering to people who are Spanish-speaking, um, some English is way better than others, uh, I've been immersing myself in... Uh, this Spanish Bible and what's really nice, the way this one is set up, I wish the font was just a little bit bigger for, <laughs> for my eyes, but the way this is set up is that you have, a, 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 on the left side, you have the verse in Spanish, on the right side, you have the verse in English, and they're right next to each other, and it's helping me um, learn the, 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 some of the key words that are, uh, that are in English, those key theological words. It's helping me to see... Um, uh, how the Spanish translators, which words they 
uh, they use to translate those words. But all of this having been said, in order, to get a, in order to get two Bibles in one book this size, they've gotten rid of the subheadings. And what's interesting is when you don't have any subheadings, well, verse 59 of chapter 8 um, is right in front of verse 1 of chapter 9. Now, there's no subheading there, which is mentally um, creating kind of a line of demarcation in our, our minds, if you will. I'm not saying the subheadings are bad. Uh, if I'm trying to find something really quickly, I like those subheadings. They help me find it. Uh, and I think there's a, there's a really, it's a really good exercise sometimes just to leaf through the Bible and look at the subheadings because it helps you outline the various books of the Bible. Um, but what this actually helps is I think that what is taking place here in uh, John 9 and verses 1 through 7 it could be happening actually, literally, as Jesus is leaving the temple. In, in chapter 8, verse 59, they pick up stones to throw at him. They're attempting to stone him. And we're told that Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's not get the, any kind of impression that Jesus is running from them scared. That is not what's going on. Uh, in fact, the fact that Jesus hid himself, I think we should understand that in the context of the prophets. For example, the prophet Isaiah, and I think maybe Isaiah, you don't need to turn there because I'm not, Isaiah 65, uh, maybe verse 7, uh, we have, when I read it, you'll, I think it's verse 7, where we read, there's no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you. And listen to this, for you have hidden your face from us, and you have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. And the idea right there is that the Lord will hide his face from those who are continually, obstinately bent on sin and bent on rejecting uh, the Holy One of Israel, which is what we have going on in chapter 8, isn't it? They're attempting to stone the Holy One of Israel. And what does he do? He hides himself, and he departs from the temple. There's an enormous theological uh, point being made right there that we want to be sure that we don't miss. And I'm drawing this out because we really see the heart of our Savior. Because what, if this is happening, if this is happening, if verses 1 through 7 are happening as Jesus is leaving the temple, in other words, it's, if Jesus walks two blocks down the street and there he sees this man born blind, what does that say about the heart of our Savior? They were picking up stones to stone him moments ago. And then he comes upon this man blind, and he reaches out to him with compassion, as if nothing had ever happened back there. What would be our attitude? We're through with this. That does it. This is enough. But that's not the attitude of our Savior, is it? Aren't we thankful for that? Um, shouldn't we be thankful for that? And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And last week, we spent most of our time in verses 2 and 3 because his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And here we find ourselves in the subject of human suffering. That's why I thought it was profitable for us to spend a morning just on human suffering. It's a big issue. It's a big, it's a, it's a big problem. And for many, Jesus' answer may actually create more problems 
I don't know because notice how Jesus answers. He says it was not that this man sinned or his parents. So he's saying it's neither. In other words, what Jesus is saying, what the disciples are asking is, how, how bad did this man blow it that he would be born like this, that he would be punished like this? Or was maybe as his parents, how, I mean, how bad did they blow it? Are they the ones that blew it that he would be born this way? They're blaming his blindness on some particular sin that might have been committed either by the man or uh, by the parents. And Jesus answers, no, it's neither of those. Uh, okay. I'm all ears here. Jesus goes on to say, well, it's by the will and design of the Father that he was born this way. Now, if we're being carried completely by our culture, I mean, we're blowing a gasket on that answer, aren't we? I mean, we are blowing a gasket because we're told every day that we deserve to be like kings and queens. And we just have no way to deal with that. But look what Jesus says in verse 3. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. If we don't get that principle, we're not going to get the next principle. We are not. If we miss this one, we're certainly going to be in the dark for what follows. And Jesus answers in verse 4. He continues his answer basically in verse 4. He says, uh, we must... Uh, work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And then in verse 6, which we're going to spend most of our time this morning in verses 6 and 7, having said these things, verse 6, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, um, what are we to make of this methodology? I mean, what are we to make of... Have you ever wondered that? What are we to make of this method that Jesus uses? In other words, why didn't Jesus just simply command these eyes to see? I mean, he could have done that, couldn't he? He could have said, listen, see. What would have happened? He would begin to see, would he not? I mean, in chapter 11, we're going to see that Lazarus, his eyes aren't working. In chapter 11, in fact, his heart isn't working either. Neither is his mind. Nothing's working. He's dead in a tomb. And Jesus commands him and says, listen, come out. So his eyes start working again. His heart starts working again. His circulatory system starts working again. His brain starts working again. And he comes out. Well, Jesus could have easily just said, listen, see. But instead, he makes this compound. You know, the old King James, I love the, I love the King James translation, you know. He makes mud out of the spittle. It's called the spittle, you know. He takes the spittle and um, he anoints thine eyes with the spittle, you know. <laughs> it's like I love that stuff. Maybe, a, all right, enough of that. But it's cool, isn't it? <laughs> It's really cool. It's majestic. The Word of God is majestic, and it's majestic. And I, I, I love it. Back to our question. This is a difficult question. When you go to the commentaries, they're not always a lot of help because everybody's saying something different. And I've come to know, I've been doing this long enough to know that when everyone's saying something different, nobody really probably knows. And everyone's saying, a lot of people are saying things different. A lot of people say, listen, it's difficult. We just don't know. 
We just don't know. And some ignore it altogether. But here's the thing. I don't think that we can go on. I just don't think we should ignore it. I think we ought to at least take a stab at it. Now, uh, I have shared with uh, all of you, most of you, over and over again, I'll never ask you to believe something unless I can show it from Scripture. And when I'm offering an opinion, I will let you know uh, I'm offering you opinion. Later in this message, I am going to offer an opinion of why I think uh, Jesus is using this method. And you can, you, know, you, you can, you can do what you want with it. Um, but I, I certainly wouldn't want to spend the entire 45 minutes offering you opinions. The last thing you need is uh, another opinion by another person. Uh, we don't gather here on Sunday mornings to get opinions. Uh, we gather here to hear from the, from the Lord. Now, one of the things I want to do this morning is I want to show, uh, when, we're look, when we're studying Scripture and we come to something like this, how do we even attempt to try to answer it? Now, what tools are at our disposal, in other words, to try to answer a question like this? Or what method might we use in order to try uh, to solve this uh, this mystery, if you will. And I'm going to take you through how I do it. I see it a lot like uh, algebra, if you will, in many ways. Uh, in algebra, you have an unknown. And how do you solve the unknown? You solve the unknown by gathering what you do know. And the first thing you do is you gather what you do know. Now, what do we know? Actually, we know a lot of things right here. So let's gather all of those into one place. And as we gather all those into one place, it, it, we're going to find this to be, I think, quite edifying. Um, what do we know about this blind man, for example? Well, we know that he, was been, that he was born blind. We know that from verse 2. Okay, we know that. Holy Spirit is telling us he's born blind. That means he has never seen his mother's face. He's never seen a countenance of approval from his father. He's never seen a blue sky. He's never seen a sunset. He's never seen red. He's never seen blue. He's never seen violet. He's never seen a rose. He's never seen anything. Um, so seeing is humanly impossible for him. Seeing is humanly impossible for him. We know that. We know this to be the case. Secondly, we know that he's a beggar. If you look at verse 8, the neighbors, those who had seen him before as a what? A beggar. Um, they ask, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? You know, why is he a beggar? Well, what in this economy, what else would he do for a living? So his blindness has reduced him to begging. So he is a man uh, who recognizes his helpless state. In other words, he's a man who has learned to depend on mercy. We know this about him. We know this about him. We also know that the man doesn't come to Jesus, that Jesus comes to him. That's it. Sounds like we had a TV rolling back there or something. I was hoping this wouldn't be boring, but, <laughs> you know, there's an old story of, uh, I, remember, I remember when I was in, I was remember uh, when I was in uh, Geneva, still studying in Geneva College, uh, someone talked about a story that uh, one of the churches, it was in the African-American community, the churches would go until two and three in the afternoon, you know, and, and uh, 
there was a, a woman there. Um, she was always in the service, you know. But she would be the first one there, and she'd be the last one to leave. But during football season, she had one of those little battery-operated radio. Or and she could be seen. She'd have the game. Never mind. It reminded me of that story. So. What we know about this man, he was... <laughs> We're all family here. The man, is, the man is born blind. Seeing is humanly impossible. He recognizes his helpless state, right? He depends on mercy. The man doesn't come to Jesus. Jesus comes to him. And in verse 4, we're told, in fact, backing up to verse 3, we're told that there's a design here by God. That was what we took, looked at last week, that God has a design here. Jesus said it was not that this man sinned or his parents, that he was born blind, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. So that, that, that's, that's informing us that we're to be watching here uh, for a display, right? Okay, we know that. Uh, so ministry to this man, verse 4, is a work. Verse 3 and 4 is a work from the Father. Jesus says, we must work the works of him who sent me when it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Now, this whole idea of work, we've got works in verse 3, we've got works in verse 4, and if we're reading through John, we're going to know that, you know what, that's one of the themes. So let's, let's take a look. Keep your place in John, and let's just go back a little ways to chapter 4 and verse 34, and let's catch this. Let's catch this theme that John is presenting to us, that the Holy Spirit is presenting to us. Chapter 4, verse 34, the context of that verse is Jesus has met with the Samaritan woman at the well, and the disciples, you recall, had gone to get food. Now they come back with food, and in verse 31, they're urging Jesus to eat, but Jesus said, I have food to eat that you do not know about. In other words, Jesus has an appetite that they don't know about. There is something that he lives for that they don't know about. So the disciples say to one another in verse 33, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them in verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his what? His work, right? His work. Some of our translations might vary. I didn't look at all the translations through all these. We're going to look at a slew of them. So here we see this idea of work, if you will. Now look at chapter 5, verse 23. Chapter 5, verse 23. He says, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. Um, that's, well, I'm sorry, I'm giving you the wrong verse. Chapter 5, verse 17. That works better. Chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus answered, my father is working until now, and I am working. You see that? We're going to come to the other verse here in a minute. But see how Jesus is working? And of course, the context of this, you recall, Jesus heals an invalid, right, at Bethesda. And he's taking a lot of heat because he does it on the Sabbath. In verse 16, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he's doing these things on the Sabbath. Jesus says, my father is working until now, and I am working. In verse 18, we're told this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. We've been over this verse quite a bit. And what have we said? In their estimation, Jesus has been breaking the Sabbath. 
It's important that we see it's in their estimation. Is Jesus breaking the Sabbath? No. Jesus is without sin. No, works of mercy and necessity are lawful on the Sabbath day in this economy. No question about it. He's healing a man on the Sabbath. Verse 19, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. So here we see this doing again. Uh, And notice in this verse, what we're seeing here is that Jesus' union with the Father is so perfect and close that practically speaking, whatever we see Jesus doing, we can know the Father is doing, right? Jesus and the Father are so close in concert with one another that whatever we see Jesus doing, we can know the Father is doing. Does that make sense? Okay, verse verse 36, 536, and this is really instructive. Um, Second sentence of verse 36, at least in the ESV, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, that's Jesus speaking, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So there's a purpose in all these works. And Jesus isn't, we're not, we're not being left to guess what this purpose is. Jesus is telling us what this purpose is. The purpose is so that we will realize that Jesus has been sent from the Father. Now, uh, going back to John chapter 9, verse 3, there we see the design and will of God. This man has been born blind that the works of God might be displayed in him if you will. Um, Jesus says in verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Now, there's another strand. Let's review here because we've got a lot of pieces laying out here. The man's been blind. Seeing is humanly impossible. He recognizes his helpless state. He's depending on mercy. He doesn't come to Jesus. Jesus comes to him. Ministry to this man is a work from the Father. And these works are to display in the blind man, okay, something. We're looking for it to display something. Now, Jesus has, always, has already told us this, this. One of the things it's just to display is that he has been sent by the Father. Now, this whole idea of sent plays a big role in our text this morning. And I want to show you, if you're reading through John, you'll come across this word sent many, many times, but I think... It might be wise for us just to take a look at some. I mean, I'm not going to give you them all, but let's just take a quick run through here, starting with chapter 4, verse 34, and notice how many times Jesus points attention to this. In John 4, 34, which we just read, Jesus tells his disciples that his food is to do the will of, uh, of him who what? Who sent me, Right? 523, now we can come to that verse. 523, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who what? Who sent him. Look down to verse 30. Uh, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who what? Sent me. Look at verses 36 through 38. For the works, partway through verse 36, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father is what? Verse 37, and the Father who what? 
sent me, has himself borne witness about me. Uh, verse 38, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Three verses, three times. Then we'll go to chapter 6, verse 38. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of what? The will of him who what? Who sent me. Verse 39, and this is the will of him who what? Sent me. Chapter 7, verse 16. Jesus says, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Verse 18, one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who what? Sent him is true, and in him there's no falsehood. Look at verses 28 and 29. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I've not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. Verse 29, I know him, for I come from and he sent me. Verse 33, Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. John chapter 8, verse 16, even if I judge, my judgment is true, for I'm not alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Verse 18, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me. Verse 26, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I've heard from him. Verse uh, um, 29, he who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Um, and then chapter 9, verse 4, we must work the works of him who what? sent me. Do you think Jesus is trying to get something, get our attention with something here? I didn't count how many times, I, and I didn't list all of them, by the way, either. That's not all of them. There are others. And we could have used other words and, uh, and allusions, uh, which would have increased the amount here. So we can say that Jesus is continuous, continuously proclaiming that the Father has sent him. That's an important piece of this puzzle. In verse 5, John chapter 9, verse 5, Jesus claims, I am the light of the world. We spent a lot of time on that in John chapter 8, verse 12. This is the second time that he's saying that. And I'm going to table that for this week uh, because we're going to see, and it, that plays an important role actually in John chapter 9, and it creates linkage with John chapter 8. But in verse 6, uh, what do we know? We know that this blind man gets mud in the eyes. Seems a strange way to heal somebody. Um, next time it's your eye doctor, ask him, about mud in the eyes and see what he thinks about. Uh, someone may have already asked him. He, you might be surprised. I think um, I try to remember to ask my eye doctor. I like to have theological conversations with him. It'd be a great way to do it. If you're anybody with mud in their eyes, you know. Um, he gets mud in his eyes. And he's also, in verse 7, given a command to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, if our text ended right there, I might not think a whole lot about it although I'd be wanting to make some connections. But notice in parentheses, we have an interpretation given to us by the Holy Spirit. The interpretation is which means sent. Okay, this can't be ignored. We're supposed to see this. Now, <laughs> let's put this together. Um, so the guy, the man is, Jesus makes this mud, he smears mud in the man's eyes, he gives him a command to go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. 
This, with all of the other things we looked at, let's see if we can explain why mud in the eyes. I'll give you my take on it. You don't need to turn there. We've turned there many times. I'm going to turn there and just listen to this verse. We don't have to guess why John is writing because John tells us why he's writing in chapter 20, verse 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I point your attention to that because we can know that our story that we're studying right now is playing a role in accomplishing that goal, right? Does that make sense? What is the goal? Well, the goal is that we would see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. That is the goal. Okay, you don't need to turn there here either, but looking at the wider and broader context of John, how does John begin? He is unique in the respect that John begins out of eternity, doesn't he? He goes back beyond before anything was ever created, back in John chapter 1, verse 1, where he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And we have one of the clearest statements of the Trinity right there. So it's before anything was created. Now, we're also told that the Word was involved in creation. All, verse 3, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything uh, made that was made. He's eternal. He existed before anything was created. If He's created, He couldn't have created all that's been created. Because something would have been created, and that something would have been Him. And the verse couldn't read the way that it does. Everything that's been created has been created through him. Not one thing that was made, it has been made, was not made unless it was made through him. So that was a little confusing, but do you follow? Okay, so he's involved in creation. Now, we go back to this idea of mud in the eyes. Some commentaries, and I think they're right, will draw attention to Genesis 2-7. Why mud in the eyes? Why the dust of the earth? In Genesis 2-7, you don't need to turn there, but in Genesis 2-7, we're told that God takes the dust of the earth and he forms it. He forms and fashions it into a body, right? And then he breathes into the body and the body becomes a living creature and he names that creature man, Adam in Hebrew. Names him Adam, which means man. Now, Here's, here's my take. All of this, I think we can say, thus saith the Lord. Everything so far. And I'm going to give you my take. This is my take on this. This is my opinion. You can take it or leave it. I think we should think of Genesis 3.17 here, where Genesis 3.17 speaks. This is after Adam has fallen. And now God is pronouncing the curse. And one of the things that God says when he pronounces the curse to Adam is he says, cursed is the ground. Cursed is the ground because of you. It's why we have frustration in the workplace. It's why we got weeds in the garden. You want to know why your weeds are in the garden? Because cursed is the ground because of us. That's why. All right, so the blind man is before Jesus, and Jesus takes dust from the cursed ground, Forms dust wouldn't stay in his eyes. He forms mud with the spittle, if you will. He smears it on the man's eyes. And then he commands the man to go. 
but to go to a specific place, to the pool of Siloam, which means sent. In fact, we could even translate it, go to the pool of Siloam, the sent one. So here's this man with his blind eyes and the cursed grounds, and there he is headed to the sent one, headed to the sent one, if you will. Now, what have we been saying about the pool of Siloam? Some of you wouldn't have heard that message, but back in chapter 8 when I was developing that, one of the things in the Feast of Booths, which is the feast that's taking place, which is the context of that chapter, one of the things that's going on in the Feast of Booths is that the priests would go to the pool of Siloam and dip water out of the pool of Siloam, right? Then they would go back to the altar, and they would pour that water on the altar, and this commemorated the promise of the Holy Spirit coming in the Messianic age. You remember that? Some of you remember me talking about that. Okay, with this information and drawing from the Apostle Paul's word in 2 Corinthians 5.17, where Paul says this, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is what? He's a new creation. Now, whether John 3, or Genesis 3.17 is to be brought in this or not, it's kind of my opinion. But here I can say, I can say this with thus saith the Lord. Here's a blind man, humanly impossible. He cannot see. He is dependent on mercy. Jesus doesn't, he doesn't seek Jesus. He doesn't even know Jesus. So he's spiritually dead at this point. He doesn't know Jesus. Spiritually dead, cannot see, doesn't know Jesus. Jesus comes to him. He takes this earth, if you will, makes mud out of it, sticks it on his eyes, sends him to the sent one, commands him to go. And what takes place as he follows? He is recreated, if you will. He is recreated. And I think what this is pointing to is not just the recreation of us in Christ Jesus, not just the recreation of us, but also, Jesus isn't, Jesus isn't just coming to recreate us. He isn't just coming to redeem us. He isn't just coming to atone for us. He's coming to restore everything, isn't he? He's coming to restore it all. So how might we make some application of this? I know it's a lot of pieces and a lot of things to put together, and some of you are looking at me like, whoa, okay, we're done with that, okay. Um, I invite you to meditate on this. Uh, I invite you to think about this. But um, as I was thinking of some application to make on this, John 6, 29 kept coming to my mind where Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. Let me just read. You don't need to turn there, but just listen. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. We've looked at works. We've looked at sent. Uh, we've looked at all of these things. And what we see here, what's this blind man do? When Jesus says to him, Go. When he gives him the command, go. Wash in the pool of Siloam. What does he do? He goes, doesn't he? And this is crying out to be compared with Naaman, who we read about at the beginning. Do you ever wonder, why, why do we go to 2 Kings 5 this morning, verses 1 through 14, where we have Naaman the Syrian, who's the leper, and he goes to Elisha. And he wants to be cured of his leprosy. And he knocks on Elisha's door. And Elisha doesn't even come out to him. He sends his servant out to him and tells him to go dip in the Jordan seven times and he'll be healed. 
How does, the, how does Naaman, the Syrian, react to that? Is he happy about that? He's enraged, isn't he? In fact, it's his servants that talk sense into him and say, wait a second, you've been given a good word here. Do it. Dip, dip, in, the, dip in it seven times. And, and he does, and of course, his leprosy is gone. Naaman is the proud Syrian who's got a mighty name for himself. Kind of reminds us of a lot of things about ourselves, doesn't it? The United States. We're very proud people. We're much more like Naaman uh, than we are like this blind man here. This blind man is told to go to the sent one. You know, that is the same command that Jesus gives in, in Matthew eleven twenty and 8. Don't turn there. I'll turn there for you and read it. You know the verse. I just want to get it exactly right, so I'll turn there to read it. Matthew 11, verse 28 and 29. Great passage where Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. This command to go to the pool of Siloam or to go to the sent one is the same command that we're being told to come to Jesus because that sent one is what? typifies who? He who was sent, right? How many times did Jesus tell us that he's been sent over and over and over again? So we put all this together to command to go and wash in the pool of Siloam is the same command to come to Christ and be washed of sin. Amen? Have we come to the sent one? You know, I'm not asking if we've had mud in our eyes or not. Maybe we have. Um, but if we, if we truly come to him, if we truly come to him, to have our eyes open. And how is our disposition compared with his disposition? Are we truly dependent on his mercy? Do we truly rely on him to see? Do we truly rely on him to hear? We'll say much more about this as we go along. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Father, for helping us get through a difficult text. And Father, perhaps many of us want to listen to all this again. And the less familiar we are with all these verses, the harder it is to grasp all of this. But Father, we thank you that as we become more and more familiar with your word, we begin to see these things more and more clearly. No, Father, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if Genesis 3.17, the cursed ground, is the reason that you chose this method or not, Father. We offer it as an opinion. Oh, Father, we don't offer it as thus saith the Lord. But what we do know is that we are commanded to go to the one who is sent. We are commanded to go to the sent one, and we are commanded to go as beggars. And we are blind beggars left to ourselves. We cannot see. We cannot hear. We have no spiritual life in us at all. And we know that unless you take the initiative in our lives, just as you took the initiative in this man's life, unless you take the initiative in our lives, Father, we know that we will never see. We will never hear. But, oh, Father, how blessed, how blessed is this story, oh, Father, as we begin to see that when you took and made this mud and you stuck it on this man's eyes and you sent him to the pool of Siloam 
as he obeyed your word, O oh Father. He came back seeing, and we know this is just the beginning of the story. Father, teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.